0: Welcome to the Peace Podcast. I'm John Deere. Thanks so much for taking time to listen to our Pache Bene Peace Podcast. And I hope you will encourage your friends and others to listen to them. That'd be a big help. Thanks so much. At the moment, we at Pace Bene are preparing an amazing national conference on nonviolence for August 2020 in New Mexico to mark the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with great speakers like Martin Sheen, Dolores Huerta, Father Richard Rohr, Dr. Erica Chenoweth, Roshi Joan Halifax, and many others. Check out our website and register at www.campaignnonviolence.org. I hope to see you there. Well, a few podcasts back, I spoke about the Beatitudes from my book, The Beatitudes of Peace. And today, I'd like to look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is also uh, reflected on in my book, The Beatitudes of Peace. As I said before, Gandhi thought the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest teaching on nonviolence in the history of the world. That's amazing. You think about it like that. Around 1900, till the day he died, he read from the Sermon on the Mount every single day. So that's my opening pitch, why I think they're so worth studying. Maybe he's the only one who took Jesus so seriously. Um, So I want to start right after the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where Jesus then announces that we are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, he says. You are the city on the hill. It's an astonishing affirmation, and I hope one we can take to heart. But after that, Jesus launches into the central section of the Sermon on the Mount, commonly called the Six Antitheses. He says he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he goes and says that the ones who teach and and practice these commandments will be considered the greatest in the kingdom of God. That's interesting to me, you know. He doesn't say you shouldn't try to be great. He says, you want to be great? Teach and practice nonviolence in the Sermon on the Mount. And each of these six antitheses begin, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Wow, that's that's it right there. And in each case, he invokes a core teaching from the Hebrew scriptures, and then he proceeds to fulfill it in light of nonviolence, love, and peace. It's wonderful. So the six antitheses are the concrete application of the Beatitudes, and they all lead up to the climax, which is the sixth antithesis, which is the most revolutionary text in all of human history. How's that for a build up? You all know what it is. Well, let's look at the first one first. Here goes. I hope you're sitting down. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, do not even get angry. What? I have been teaching this for 20 years, and so many people get angry at me when I even read that sentence. It's kind of funny. What's going on? Jesus digs at the roots of violence within us while teaching us at the same time about the emotional life of nonviolence. Earlier in the Beatitude, as you remember, he urged us to practice two emotions to cultivate them, sorrow and joy, and we avoid those. And now he's telling us, to avoid anger and fear, which I always joke, they're our best things. Anger, he says, leads to violence, and violence is categorically forbidden. It comes from our inner wounds. We've been hurt by someone starting from childhood, and so there's a wound deep within us, and we're angry, and later we lash out at someone because of this deep, untended wound. And the collective anger of the world can lead to discrimination and torture and execution and even to war and nuclear weapons and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Jesus is always trying to root out our violence. And I know what you're thinking, because I've been teaching this for 20 years. You're going, no, that's just too much. No, that, I disagree completely. Well, all I can say is this. Now, just humor me here. Go slow. Let's presume. Jesus is at least as smart as we are. (laughs) I know that's funny to say, but we presume we know better than you, Jesus. And we angrily defend our anger, especially as activists. We know better than you, psychology says anger is a neutral emotion. Okay, yeah, we all know that part. But I think the record of violence and warfare and global destruction may prove Jesus right. Maybe Jesus is right. That's why I just want to say, go slow. Let's just hear him out on this first antithesis. This is only the first one. He's saying anger doesn't bring peace. It leads to retaliation, violence, and war. Now, I can cite chapter and verse that Mahatma Gandhi is one of the very few public figures in history who cited this text, Matthew 5, verse 21, as the basis of his life work for nonviolence. Now, that's it. That's a big something to ponder. His quote was, well, he said it the week before he died. I am so glad I conserved my anger. It was the smartest move I ever made. And I, he only did it because Jesus knows better than me. He's not a raging lunatic. He, actually, he's more like Thich Nhat Hanh, very peaceful, till the day he died. How do you get there? You have to work at it. And this is what Gandhi did. And we don't. Gandhi said, it's easy to be a raging, angry activist. Anyone can do that. Can you be? Is there another way? A total nonviolent activist? And that's why Jesus is talking about sorrow and joy. Gandhi wanted to be totally nonviolent, which means going beyond our anger into grief, joy, and peace. I submit, having worked on this question for 40 years, that all the greatest saints had a huge impact for justice and peace. But at their personal, private, interior level, you're going to disagree with me, but hear me out. They transcended their anger and fear. And I can name drop a lot of the great saints who I know personally, who are way beyond that. And I will start with Archbishop Tutu, who's been under death threat his entire life since he was 13. And he's way beyond anger but what i'm trying to tell you is he should be a raging lunatic gandhi should be he's got all his people getting killed by the british and his the movement's a mess and he's beyond anger he's actually laughing a lot that's what i want to get at that's why jesus just gives us the theme but we have to spend our lives on these texts like gandhi did i know i don't want to spend my whole life in anger But I do want to be faithful to the work of peacemaking. So I want to get with Gandhi and at least try to take Jesus at his word, to experiment with it, to let go of anger, and to forgive those who hurt me, and cultivate sorrow and joy, and try to go into a more holistic, nonviolent life. Now, well, I don't even have time to go through all of this. That's why you should get the book to really study this more, but uh, the Beatitudes of Peace. But the next sentence is, He's saying, don't even get angry. Therefore, start thinking about all the people you have hurt who are angry at you. And you're going, wait a second, Jesus. We're talking about my anger. And Jesus said, well, what about all those people you've hurt? And he issues a commandment in the Greek, katagalite, be reconciled. And I'm saying this fast. But actually, this thing that happens is, whatever you do, don't go and worship don't go into the sanctuary and be with God I mean it's so shocking if you really unpacked it he says stop what you do go katagalite you reconcile with all the people who are angry at you all the people whom you hurt it's your responsibility go and apologize and reconcile with them and then go into the sanctuary and bring your gift to God if you, if you really begin to unpack this one first antithesis, it's life-changing. And what I'm proposing is that Gandhi did. Gandhi spent every day for 40 years on this verse. And if you want to look at the Sermon on the Mount this way, the first time he talks about prayer and worship, Jesus says, don't do it in the state you're in. Katakalite. Go and make up to all the people you hurt. You know that's a, it's, it's it's incredibly challenging. Well, I'm going to just jump ahead to the fifth antithesis. There's six of them. This is the one that was the basis of Gandhi's life work. He where Jesus explicitly forbids violent retaliation in the face of anyone who does violence or threatens evil to you. So here's the sentence: You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I say to you offer no violent resistance to one who does evil and if you want to write that down this is Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 42 this incredibly important sentence I think it's the key to understanding Jesus and God how serious am I about this Tolstoy spent the last 25 years of his life writing about this one sentence. Think on that. And I've researched all of this. And he was rejected. He was trying to convert the you know, Orthodox Russian Church. It was totally... The, the purpose of the church is no one can use violence if you're a follower of Jesus. Because he look at Matthew 5, 38. And he was completely rejected and he died so depressed, as you may know. But there was this one obscure reader this young guy in South Africa, who is from India, who took it seriously, Gandhi. And it's so interesting that the, he wrote to Tolstoy, and Tolstoy recognized it was all worth it, because this guy's going to be great. So what's Jesus talking about, an eye for an eye? That, you know that. That's from Leviticus. The Torah, the law, tried to regulate fair punishment so that punishment, the punishment would not exceed the, inner, the injury. But here, Jesus prohibits any punishment. No more punishment, no violent retaliation. From now on, if you're faced with violence, you don't punish, you don't retaliate, we use creative nonviolent resistance, creative nonviolence. The Greek word here, according to the great scholar Walter Wink, is antistane. And I'm very passionate about these exact words. The best translation is offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. Um, antistene means to resist with violence, to revolt or to be a, a violent revolutionary or to be a rebel with violence. Jesus says no antistene. Therefore, literally, no violent resistance to one who does evil. Now that's the actual Greek and why this is so less, even the very few times you might ever hear this in church, the translation is so bad. But the, what Jesus is saying, and what Gandhi just spent every day reading that verse, is do not use violence to resist evil. <laughs> what? That's what we're commanded. So you've got to be creative and figure out a nonviolent way to resist evil. Good luck. Go to it. That's what Jesus' command is, and Jesus tried in a million ways. Don't continue the downward spiral of violence. He wants us to break that downward cycle of violence by refusing to cooperate with violence or retaliating with further violence. Violence in response to violence only always leads to further violence. Do not repay evil for evil. That's why Gandhi came up with incredible translation. (laughs) An eye for an eye only makes the whole world blind. Isn't that brilliant? So, okay, what, Jesus? Are you saying sit back, be passive, and just suffer violence? Not at all. No, that's not it. It's actually even scarier. Walter Wink puts it this way. The world up to Jesus said there's two options in the face of violence. Fight back with violence or run away and do nothing. Be passive. Wink comes along and says Jesus offers a third way. That's his classic way, phrase, a third way. Active nonviolent resistance. So you're not passive, you're not indifferent to evil, it's quite the contrary. You are actively engaging the evil and the opponent, but you don't use the means of the oppressor. So it's active nonviolent resistance to every form of violence, injustice, and, and oppression with one catch that has to be nonviolent. So I think the fifth antithesis in the Sermon on the Mount is the clearest teaching a nonviolent resistance to evil in all of human history and it has been totally ignored, beginning by Christians, especially Christians alive in the world today. If not, it's at least been misinterpreted as passivity. But scholars are all clear now that it calls for creative, confrontational, nonviolent action that disarms the oppressor without using the means of the oppressor. Jesus wants us to stand up and resist the evil, but through active nonviolence. So you hold your ground. You speak the truth. You insist on our common humanity, but you're loving your opponent. And you risk suffering love. And, and you're still trusting in God. And you're working to convert your opponent, who's actually your brother and sister, so that they, keep, they don't keep doing evil. Your goal is not to hurt or kill the opponent, but to transform him, to lead him to a change of heart, to win him over to the truth through your nonviolent suffering love, to convert him to the wisdom of nonviolence and to help him and others welcome God's reign of peace, love, and nonviolence here and now. Isn't that great? And all the books say, and then just in a nutshell, Gandhi and King have proved that Jesus' methodology works. We now know this works. I can testify that it has worked for me personally when I've been threatened with violence. But that's another podcast. Like every good teacher, though, what's so amazing here is Jesus doesn't just say this and leave us with the theory. He gives five concrete examples about how to do this. Did you know that? I'm sure, if you're honest, most of us would say, no, I didn't know. Offer no violent resistance. Hear, class, hear the people listen to me on the mountaintop. Let me give you five examples about how to do this. He's doing a nonviolent training, a nonviolent workshop. Well, the first one you've heard here goes. When someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him as well. Okay, great. Then Walter Wink comes along, my great friend who passed away a few years ago, <laughs> and says, It's not possible to strike anybody on the right cheek. If you strike someone with your right cheek, where's it going to land? On on the person's left cheek. But Jesus specifically says when someone strikes you on the right cheek. So what the heck is he talking about? Well, to strike someone on the right cheek would mean you'd have to use your left hand. But in those days, the left hand was only allowed for unclean work. You know, going to the bathroom. So you could be punished for using your your left hand for anything So the only way to strike someone on the right cheek, how do you do that? Would mean to be top down using the back of the hand, the back of the right hand like a slap across the face, you nobody. In other words, Jesus is not talking about a fist fight, but top down violent humiliation, which is actually even more important to figure out how to resist. This is the behavior of the slave owner. Jesus speaking to slaves. How do you nonviolent resist? To the Roman soldier who's going through Galilee and oppressing all the people, and they're being kneeled down, they're kneeling down before them, being humiliated. And Jesus said, if you're a slave or a peasant kneeling in front of the violent Roman soldier and they strike you on the right cheek, just turn the other cheek. What? He's saying, assert your dignity, your quality, your equality and humanity. Put yourself on e- equal footing. In other words, think about it. That's why Jesus is a genius, and Gandhi's right. Jesus is way smarter than us. He's saying, you can say to the oppressor, I deny you the power to humiliate me. I am a human being just like you. When, they turn, when you turn that other cheek, he can't slap you with the back of the hand. He can't treat you like a piece of dirt. That's what's so amazing. That's why Gandhi said, now I'm going to quote Gandhi here, this is very hard for me to understand. I've been talking about it for 40 years. The, this is Gandhi. Quote The first principle of nonviolent action is that of non cooperation with everything humiliating. That's very powerful. That takes in racism and sexism and classism. You don't allow people to humiliate you if you're a nonviolent person, but you don't use violence back. So Jesus, is, he's not saying, sit back passively and suffer the violence. You nonviolently resist their injustice. You take nonviolent action for our liberation and theirs. You are, you are not helpless or powerless, but it's risky. It's scary. It means engaging the opponent right there and then in the face of violence. And that's why Jesus says 15 times in the Gospels, do not be afraid. You know, I read the other day my friend Kazahagu's new book, and he was saying, uh, you know, this nonviolence stuff sounds scary. You're going to get killed. And he said, well, uh, <clears throat> you know, if you use violence, you could, you're could you going to get killed too. <laughs> so there's a better chance of not getting killed if you use nonviolence. That's the wisdom here. Oh, you don't like that one? Here, Jesus says, here's a second example. I'm not making this up, folks. This is right in Matthew. Go and do your homework and read it. Example number two, quote. If anyone wants to go to law with you over your tunic, hand him your cloak as well." Well, Walter Wing is the first person in history to explain what the heck Jesus is talking about. In that time, poor people, of course, were forever in debt. And people were so poor, like out in Galilee. It's the poorest place on the planet, truly. They only had two pieces of clothing. You have your inner garment and your outer garment. And they're being hauled into court to get just the few pennies they own that they have to give even their outer garment. The the clothes off your back until you pay up your dollar to the landlord. Jesus is saying to these very poor, oppressed people, his disciples and the others, uh, well, give them your inner garment too. So wait a second. You're a poor person. You're being sued in court by your landlord who's the oppressor who owns all of rural Palestine for your outer garment to get your rent. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying this simply, but Jesus just give them your inner garment. Oh, you need my clothes? Take everything. Now do the math. I did not make this example up. What would that mean? The poor person is standing naked in the middle of the courtroom. But in those days, according to the law, it is illegal to look upon a naked person. Jesus's audience would have known this and would realize that the judge and all the Roman soldiers and the landlord would all have to arrest themselves for violating the law, and the poor person would go home free. This is real creative dynamic. Nonviolence. And it's scary and risky. Who would want to do that? Jesus is saying, folks, claim your power. Respond creatively. Nonviolence is infinitely creative. Disarm their opponents, your opponents, and liberate yourselves. Engage them. Don't run away. Don't be violent, but take a risk. Wow. You don't like that one? Here's a third one he says. Quote, should anyone press you into service for one mile, go with him two miles. What the heck is that about? Well, who cares? Well, wait to hear what Walter Wink discovered. In those days, imagine the Roman soldiers are coming through by the thousands, of the Roman Empire, and they're barreling through the countryside. What are they doing? They're burning the homes, stealing the goods, raping the women, taking the men, forcing them to carry the goods, and then they're off in the Roman army killing and being killed. And of course the children are left to die. It's horrible. It's war but the romans were liberal and they now had a new nice liberal law isn't that nice which said that you roman soldiers you're only allowed to force these poor people that you've stolen everything from to walk 1 mile with you cuz we're decent roman citizens and <laughs> these these galileans are totally terrorized by their occupiers do the math much like millions of people today in Iraq, and Afghanistan, and Yemen, and Syria, and Palestine. And who are the occupiers, the Americans? Jesus is showing them a way to nonviolently resist the soldiers. Go an extra mile. Excuse me? Yeah, when they make you carry that pack, say, oh, no, I don't mind. I'll go that. Let's keep going. I'll keep carrying it. And his disciples and the hearers would understand that the soldiers would get caught by their superior. Anyone who made the person look like they're going an extra mile would be arrested for breaking the law and forcing the oppressed to go too far. It's so creative. If you all did this, Jesus said, all the soldiers would be arrested and imprisoned and you would not be occupied anymore. I mean... That's the teaching, it's amazing. Notice he's saying, he's not saying fight back or kill the Romans, and he's not saying sit back and suffer passively walking that mile. You're using your imagination. He's teaching creative nonviolent resistance to transform the situation. Wow. The fourth and fifth are simple, give to the one who asks of you. And so instead of making money and hoarding it, he's overturning capitalism, teaching us to give to those in need. And as Luke later explains, he unpacks it a bit further, without asking for anything in return. There's no reciprocation in Jesus' nonviolence. Be generous, selfless. The fifth one, do not turn your back on one who wants to borrow. So lend your others, don't turn your back, be generous. Well, just imagine if we applied these gospel economics socially and globally. We'd have to end our hoarding, hoarding return the the resources that we've stolen for the poor, which is everything, and feed the hungry, and house the homeless, and heal the sick, and treat everyone with respect and dignity, and make social and economic justice a priority. I think these are five incredible examples that show us how to practice creative nonviolent resistance in the face of violence. It's an amazing nonviolent workshop that Jesus does, and I'm not making this up. It's right there in the 2,000 years ago, this was written. It's amazing. What's more amazing is that the rest of the Gospels show how Jesus practiced this. He did it every day for the rest of his life. In fact, friends, I think Jesus practiced creative nonviolent resistance every hour of his public life, that he engaged in hundreds and thousands of disarming nonviolent actions. I've committed civil disobedience probably 200 times and been arrested 85 times. Every hour for Jesus with civil disobedience. Because they always want to kill him. He but he's never passive and he never uses violence or retaliates with violence. But wow does he engage in nonviolent action? And wow is he not angry? And I can cite you chapter and verse, and wow is he not afraid. What the good news is that millions of people around the world are now engaged in nonviolent resistance to oppression and war and empire. This has never happened before. And Wink was the first people person to really document the massive grassroots global movement of nonviolence more and more of us are learning than never before in history right now even though things are so bad people are learning that nonviolence means power that it's a methodology of social change that works and jesus laid it all out gandhi took it seriously and proved him right then dr king and now we're learning so as we join the movement and experiment with creative nonviolence we're really friends, obeying Jesus and following him. Well, all of this, I haven't even gotten to the climax yet. Here's the sixth antithesis. This is the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? It took me a long time to understand that. In literature those days, when you wrote, you put the most important piece in the center, not at the end like we do in all of writing. You lead up to a big climax in a book. That's not the way they wrote. So this is actually the center piece of the Sermon on the Mount, the great commandment. Matthew uh, 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your countrymen and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons and daughters of your heavenly God. For God makes his sun rise on the bad and the good and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Dear friends, these are the most important words that Jesus ever said, in my opinion, the most important words in the Bible, the most radical, political, revolutionary words ever uttered. And we've spent the last 1,700 years pretending he never said this and dismissed it because we know better. Sorry, Jesus, you don't have to love your enemies. You get to kill them. That's the whole reason we make them, to kill them. And steal their land and resources and get all their money. War is all about money. With this teaching, what's so important, what I really want to share with you is that this is specific language in the Greek. He uses explicit nation-state language. He's not talking about the neighbor you don't like across the street or your difficult boss. He says, love your Remember, it's right, you shall love your countrymen and hate the enemy. But I say love your enemies. It's, it's the people not in your country. It's the people targeted by your country. The nation targeted by your nation. So that means explicitly for us, the people of Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, why don't we obey that? Because you're going to get within trouble with your nation. And begin with the people around you, and maybe your government. And maybe you might get killed, like Jesus did. We're afraid of the consequences, so we disobey Jesus. And we don't believe God will protect us. We go along with the nation state. We hate our enemies. We plan to kill them. We dismiss them and dehumanize them so that they're not human. And then you can kill them. And then we send our young people off to kill them in war. And we continue the culture of permanent war and hatred. That's where we are today. That's the commandment of the world. Hate your enemies, punish your enemies, kill your enemies. That's the way of the world. But in this one climactic sentence, Jesus, I don't know, does he reverse the entire nation state system? I actually think he brings it all down. It's the end of it. He says, you are not allowed to hate anymore or punish anyone or kill anyone especially beginning with the people targeted by your nation state. If that were enough, he uses this Greek word, which we do not have in the English language. You know, the Greek said five words for love, and this is agape your enemies. It's not be nice to them. It's not you have to like your enemies. It's not a love relationship. It's friend relationship. It's give up your life for them. Agape means unconditional, non-retaliatory, sacrificial, all-encompassing, all-inclusive, non-violent, universal love, the love that lays down your life for others. In this case for your enemies, so in this case for the people of Iraq and Afghanistan, you practice agape to the people of Iraq. Agape to the people of Afghanistan. That's why I went to Iraq. That's why I went to Afghanistan, fundamentally, first and foremost, to try to Follow Jesus. I have many friends who are well known in Iraq and Afghanistan and Palestine who are heroes of nonviolence. And millions of people know over there know that these Americans love them. But nobody knows them here in the US. And they're followers of Jesus. He wants us to stop killing one another and waging war and building and maintaining nuclear weapons. But to really be people of universal love, that means reaching beyond our borders, to embrace every human being on the planet as your sister and brother. That's always the key to nonviolence. To live in peace with everyone, and that means universal nonviolent love. Isn't that just fantastic? That's why nothing else is working. I mean, and this guy is a genius, and let's just go, okay. Nothing's working in the world, I'm going to start doing what Jesus did. That's clearly what Gandhi and King did, and I invite us to do the same. Now, notice what he doesn't say. It doesn't say, love your enemies, but if they're really, really bad, and you meet these seven conditions, bomb the hell out of them. That's called the just war theory, which is not in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not in the four Gospels, and it's not in the New Testament. And it has nothing to do with Jesus. And the Catholic Church and the Christian community has followed it for at least 1,700 years. We have categorically thrown out this commandment of Jesus. It was created, the just war theory created three centuries after the death of Jesus. And now it just says, oh, well, you don't have to follow that. We know better than him. You have to kill these people. And it's antithetical to everything the poor guy taught. But my question when I was a kid was always, OK, why, Jesus? You've got to give me a good reason. I remember when I found the answer, and it was January 1983, and I was on the Longer Retreat, and I was studying, that's the 30-day silent retreat of St. Ignatius, I'm studying the writings of Dr. King. <laughs> Forgive me if I've said this before, but because I, I started to imitate Dr. King. He goes, Jesus does not command us to love our enemies because it's the right thing to do, even though it is. Jesus does not command us to love your enemies because it's the moral position to take, even though it is. Jesus does not command us to love your enemies because it's the only practical political solution left, even though it is, nothing else is working. Doesn't it just make you want to cry? And I can hear Martin Luther King saying this. Didn't we already agree, friends, in the Beatitudes? Why do you love your enemies? Because God loves God's enemies. And didn't we just agree? You are the sons and daughters of your God in heaven. For God makes God's sun rise on the bad and the good, and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God practices universal nonviolent love. And didn't we say in the Beatitudes, remember, blessed are the peacemakers, they are the sons and daughters of the God of peace. You are the sons and daughters of the God of peace and universal love. Therefore, you just go and practice universal nonviolent love. Isn't that just amazing? Actually, this sentence is the most political sentence in the entire Bible, and I submit the best description of the very nature of the mystery of God in the entire Bible. All in one sentence, God is nonviolent. That's really the heart of everything. We do this because of God. That's why Gandhi read this sentence every single day. Well, if we start loving your enemies, what's going to happen? Well, I can tell you. (laughs) People are going to get really upset, and then they're going to get mad, and then you're going to get harassed, and you're going to get put in jail. All that's happened to me, and death threats, and you're really going to get persecuted. They're not going to give you the Nobel Peace Prize. That's why the next words from Jesus are the second commandment, which is the first time he really talks about prayer. Go and pray. Okay, Jesus, I'm with you on that. Don't pray for yourself. What? Don't pray for your enemies. What? We're not to pray for the people of Iraq and Afghanistan. Actually, that's my experience. They're way ahead of us in this. Pray for your persecutors. Who's that? The people around you and your government who want to put you in jail and harassing you and fire you because you want to go off to be with and support the children of Afghanistan and Palestine. Pray for those who are harassing you because because we love our enemies. So, friends, as Sermon on the Mount people, we try to love the people of Iraq and Afghanistan and pray for those who oppose our work. Now, I know this is a lot. I'm going to keep on going, but hang in here with me. I'm just getting to chapter 6 now. Chapter 6 begins with... These are all concrete teachings after the big six antithesis. It begins with a series of teachings on four practices on living this out. Okay, here's like four personal things you need to do. Okay. Prayer, almsgiving, fasting, and forgiveness. Okay. For Jesus, they're the key ingredients for the life of nonviolence. However, here's the catch. They have to be done with humility. And actually... Secrecy, and I want you to go and read this and read Our prayers are to be made secretly in the silence of our hearts. When you give money away to the poor, and you're supposed to go and give money away to the poor, that's a critical life, part of the life. But no one's to know you're doing it. You should fast regularly, but no one's to know you're doing it. And you're to forgive everyone who ever hurt you over and over again every day for the rest of your life. And these practices are not to be performed to feel good, or worse, to feel righteous, or to feel holy. Do you see how holy I am? No. But they're for God and God's kingdom. To put it in a nutshell, (laughs) this is so darn hard, but this is what all the commentaries say. Jesus doesn't want us to be hypocrites. He hates hypocrisy. He wants us to be authentic disciples of sincere peace, humble love, universal compassion, total nonviolence. It's very hard. Because the minute you get into religion, I don't know, understand. But it's men and women. You just start getting pompous and arrogant and self-righteous and do you and everyone want everybody looking at you? That's what he's addressing here. Then he teaches us how to pray and he gives us the Our Father, where we beg the God of peace, the God of peace. What what are we begging for? Your will be done on earth, your kingdom of peace and nonviolence come on earth, that it be realized here on earth as it is already realized now in heaven. As we beg for God's will and kingdom to be done here on earth, starting with ourselves, we forgive, once again, everyone who ever hurt us. It's unconditional clemency. And we say, and this is the catchphrase, you, God, forgive us the way, look how generous we are. That's a very serious prayer. I think it's the most political prayer ever uttered, and we're so used to it, we've lost what Jesus is really saying. What's he saying? Well, if you say these words, and you're begging for God's will to be done, and God's reign to to come on earth, God's will is nonviolence, God's reign is nonviolence, that means we are way beyond our nation and its borders. Actually, you no longer consider yourself citizens of the nation. We are now citizens of God's kingdom and begging for everyone to live in that world now and to welcome a new world without war and racism and poverty and nuclear weapons, and environmental destruction. And we're claiming our true identity, again, as our son and daughter of the God of peace, our beloved father, mother, therefore every human being is our sister and brother, and we're begging for the kingdom this to be here now. That's always the bottom line of Jesus, and I think that's the key to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or the next climax, if you will, and that's why the next part is, don't store up treasure for yourself on earth, but in God's kingdom, because the mission is the kingdom, quote, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and decay destroy, and thieves break in and steal, but store up treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor decay destroys, nor thieves break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there also will your heart be, so that's why Gandhi's reading that every day. What does that mean? Where is your treasure? Your treasure is in universal love, your sisters and brothers, nonviolence. No, it's, it's in, you're in the kingdom of God right now. So what I'm talking about is actually a new eschatology of nonviolence. If we live, well, Jesus is trying to invite us to live today as if we're already in the kingdom of God. So that's where we start letting the world fall to the wayside. And that's why the next statement makes sense. You cannot serve God and money. That's a quote. I didn't make that up. So if you focus on money, you're not focused on God. Money becomes your goal, and we see that. That's the treasure of your heart. But we're Sermon on the Mount people. We're trying to set everything aside to focus solely on God and God's kingdom. That's why we look to people like the saints, St. Saint Francis and Dorothy Day, who advocate voluntary poverty as the flip side to act of nonviolence. That helps you to focus on God and God's kingdom, because if you let go of your money and possessions, you're constantly giving it away, um, you need God <laughs> if you're trying to be nonviolent and you're not greedy anymore, which is at the heart of war and violence, and it's easier to practice universal love. But I think you can carry Jesus's logic further and say things like, you cannot serve God and country. It's one or the other. You can't serve both God and war. You cannot serve both God and nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons are idols. We're talking about idolatry here. So that's why he says now, quote, here's the quote. Therefore, gosh, whenever you hear therefore, buckle your belts. I tell you, do not worry. If I were teaching this, I'd go, are there any questions? And he gives four examples as I count them. Here's the quote again, do not worry about your life, about what you will eat, about what you will drink, or about your body, or about what you will wear. You know, I, I think that even might be five examples. I'm not good with math. I hope you're laughing with me because I'm trying to make you laugh in this hard stuff. Here, I'm just It just goes on and on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing?" Unquote. So here's the commandment here, do not worry. Life, food, drink, body, clothes. And he goes on at length about this, and it all leads up to a big commandment and climax. He's saying, trust God to take care of you, even the smallest detail. And he gives these beautiful details. You know, he's an indigenous person, and our future is to all become like the indigenous. Look at the birds in the sky. That's the way that the indigenous, that's the way Buddhists, we've forgotten that. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns. Yet God feeds them, and aren't you far more important than the birds? He leaves that question hanging. He says... God provides for these little creatures. You're more. You're, you're God's beloved sons and daughters. God's going to even provide much more from you. Every hair in your head is numbered. We can translate that to mean God is wildly, unconditionally, infinitely, lavishly, madly in loving in love with you personally. Going to protect you. So believe it and trust it and start acting like it. And then this powerful question: Can any of you, by worrying? Add a single minute to your life? No. The answer is no. So stop worrying. It's useless. It doesn't work. It's not helping. You see how practical Jesus is. And if worrying is one of your issues, then study these teachings. Concentrate on what's important. What? God. God's reign. God's justice for the poor. God's nonviolence. God's mercy and compassion. Trust in God. Let God take care of you. That's how I think about this. Experiment. Oh, okay. God, take care of me. And God will not be outdone. These questions go on. I'm quoting here. Why are you so anxious about your clothes? Learn from the wildflowers. You know, the other translation I love so much. Consider consider the lilies of the field. That's like a commandment. The Buddhists do that. You study from nature how to live. Quote, they do not work or spin, but I tell you that not even the great Solomon in all his splendor was closed like one of those yellow lilies. And if God so closed the grass of the field which grow today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will God not much more provide for you, O you of little faith? So don't worry and be like the people who say, what are we to eat or what are we to drink or what are we to wear? This is what the pagans do. Hello? That should be a wake-up call. We don't want to be like that. And here's a quote, your heavenly God knows you need all that constantly. But here's the commandment. So this is it. Listen to this. But seek first the kingdom of God and God's justice and all these things will be given to you besides. Now, I can't stress that enough. Having studied this for many years now, this is the climax of chapter six or another climax of the entire gospel. And it's a commandment, friends. Focus on God and God's reign. I'm talking about morning, noon, and night. That's what the saints did. Don't waste your energy on food, clothes, money, what to drink or wear, all of those things he's talking about. Money, possessions, privilege, security. God will take care of you. Get with the program. Do your assignment. Seek God's kingdom and God's justice. If you can, write that down. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, I have a friend, Jim Douglas, who said, 40 years ago. I never forgot it. He said, this is a law of nature. What? Okay, the law of gravity. If I hold a pen and I let it go, what's going to happen? It's going to fall to the ground. If you seek God's reign and God's justice wholeheartedly, all your needs will be met. It's a law of nature. Everything will be provided for you. Gandhi ex- dared experiment with this. So did the saints. That's what I'm trying to do. I invite you to do it. So many people are trying to do that. It's much better to get on the side of Jesus and God anyway. I mean, what are we? What does America have to offer? At the end of the li- your life, though, I think you're going to rejoice that you spent your life seeking God and God's reign. Well, I mean, I could talk for an entire week on God's reign. We haven't even talked about what that means. And I've written a lot about it, but just let me point out that I think the clearest description of that is in the Gospel of John, Jesus before Pilate, where he says, quote, My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Judeans, but my kingdom is not here. Period. Did you hear that? The only difference between the kingdom of God and all the nations in the Roman Empire and the United States and the kingdom of this world is violence and nonviolence. His kingdom is an entirely new world of infinite nonviolence. Now, that works for me. That's getting somewhere. And that's the scandal of the gospel. Jesus saying God is nonviolent. God's kingdom is nonviolence. God's justice requires nonviolence. And that's why I found that incredible sentence from Gandhi, which I think I quoted on the Gandhi podcast. Uh, This just gives me shivers. Here goes, quote, the kingdom of God is nonviolence. That is very deep. Theology, spirituality, eschatology, and soteriology, I, I just get, it's just amazing. So I invite you to experiment with this text, to seek and reflect on your own life. How do you seek first God's reign of nonviolence? And how are you discovering God taking care of you? And so how can you we get, you know help welcome God's reign on, here on earth? So here we're at the conclusion, chapter 7. Oh, gosh, it's a whole list of more commandments. Do not judge others. Remove the beam from your eye before you attempt to remove the splinter from another's. Actually, you know what? The best translation. I'm interrupting myself here. In the Greek, the word beam is actually a two-by-four. Now, you're going to, hey, I'm here to take the splinter out of your eye. Can you imagine having a splinter in your eye? How much that would hurt. And Jesus saying, you think you're going to remove the splinter in somebody's eye and you got a two-by-four sticking out of your head? It's actually incredibly funny. But if you had a two-by-four in your head, you'd be dead. I think this teaching is genius. and That's why you can spend 40 years going through every single sentence like that. I interrupted myself. I, I get carried away. I'm so sorry. I'll go back to what he says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. I've been experimenting with these texts my whole life, and uh, all I can say is I have never been let down. And here's the golden rule. It's in every major religion on earth, in every major scripture going back thousands and thousands of years. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's so consoling that even Jesus said it, Buddha said it, Confucius said it, Muhammad said it. Each of these teachings, well, what are they about? There's, (laughs) you want to go and you're, you're, I'm judging them, I'm going to correct them, I'm in charge. No, Jesus is saying, hey, you're the one with the violence. You're the one who needs humility. You need to trust and depend on God, and then just love and show it. no more judgment. Work on your two by four in your own head first. It's very hard, It's, it's great stuff. Okay. We're reaching the final climax here, folks. Here it goes. I'm quoting Matthew 7, verse 13, one of the most powerful statements in my life. Quote, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and those who enter through it are many. How narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Here, Jesus sums the whole thing up. Everyone in history takes the path of violence, and greed, and death, and destruction. Very, very few don't. Most of us don't even know there's an alternative. And I'm quoting it. Few take the na- enter by the narrow gate, or walk the road to life. Few walk, that is, walk the path of nonviolence. But enter the narrow gate of nonviolence, in a world of total violence. Walk the narrow path of nonviolence. Even everybody's walking the highway to war and greed and violence. The narrow path of nonviolence is the way to life. Um, Take it, experiment with it. So um, you've all trying to do that. I invite you to figure out um, how can we do it more and more because we want to be nonviolent. That's why I talk about living already as if we're already in God's reign. But the next sentence, he tells us to avoid all religious leaders who support violence, who do not espouse nonviolence. Wow, I'm not making this stuff up. Go and read it. His teaching is notice the fruit of other people's action. He's talking about the religious authorities, but he's talking about everybody, but it's us religious people. If they bear the good fruit of peace, justice, and compassion, nonviolence, great. Then listen to their teachings. But, quote, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but underneath are ravenous wolves. By their fruits you will know them. I could talk for hours about that. That is definitely religious language. He's talking about the religious leaders who act holy and are full of supporting the Roman Empire and killing people. And it all continues today. I think you can unpack to say that, and you can prove me wrong. Avoid anyone. Beware of anyone, beginning with ministers, priests, and bishops, who espouse violence and war. Beware of all religious people who are underneath ravenous wolves, who a wolf hurts and kills and eats the lambs. So anyone who's espousing violence and killing and war, beware of them. Don't go near them. Isn't that amazing? And here's the end. Quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the reign of heaven but only the one who does the will of my God in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty demons in, deeds in your name? And then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Gandhi reflected on this sentence perhaps more than anyone in the gospel his whole life. Did you know that? Jesus is saying, I, I want you to enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow path of light, of nonviolence, Even if everyone else is supporting war and greed, well, you, my followers, are going to walk, walk the narrow path of nonviolence and live in God's reign of love and peace now. But even more, why? Because he wants to know us personally. He wants to be our friends. We can only be his friends if... You know, we're practicing his nonviolence and universal loves. Uh, You can't be with Jesus if you're engaging in systemic injustice, which is another phrase for evil or war or violence or anything that brings death. Remember the Psalms from my last podcast, renounce evil and do good. Otherwise, Jesus will say, I never knew you. We do not want him to say that to us. We want to live in relationship with Jesus. He's a good guy. He's really nonviolent, according to Gandhi. Only those who practice nonviolence, universal love, who do good, who make peace, who serve the poor, are like him and will be known by him. Mother Teresa once said to me on the phone sorry for my name dropping, Oh, John, don't worry. God only sees those who love. I actually almost had a heart attack when she said that to me because that means God's vision is not upon those who are not loving. If you see the flip side, it's very helpful. So we want Jesus to know us, and we want to know him, of course, and the goal is to live in personal relationship with Jesus as we're practicing nonviolence. And then, quote, it ends with a two-sentence parable. These are the last words. Everyone who listens to these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise person who built her house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and buffeted the house, but it did not collapse because it had been set solidly on rock. And everyone who listens to these words of mine but does not act on them will be a fool who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and buffeted the house and it collapsed and was completely destroyed. Unquote. These are the last words of the Sermon on the Mount. Notice what he doesn't say. Whoever uh, acts on my words will never suffer rain, floods, or winds. You know, you know, uh, both cases people are hit by the storm everyone's going to have the rainfall, the floods come, the winds blow, and everyone's house is going to be shaken. It's going to happen to every human being on earth. So that's not the question for Jesus. I find that very important and helpful. Jesus is saying, life is hard, folks. You are going to get hit by the storm. The question is, what are you doing to prepare for it? The question is whether or not you will be able to survive and to withstand the destructive storm. Friends, Jesus, Jesus is saying, dear friends, I am telling you the only way to survive is by practicing my teachings. You cannot say when you, you know, when you die and get to heaven, I never knew. The only way to survive the world is by living according to the Sermon on the Mount experimenting with them, putting them into action, making this the basis of your life, as like Gandhi and Dr. King did, so that your house, your life, will not collapse because it's built firmly on rock. Notice the difference again between the two cases. Some of us hear these words and act on them. Others hear these words and don't act on them. What always impressed me was Jesus saying, I know every human being on the planet at some point has heard God's words question is whether or not you're going to act on them. Your survival depends on it. What Gandhi did, which was so amazing, was he, turned, he took the words and changed his life according to the words. He tried to live according to the words as opposed to the opposite. I'm living my life and occasionally I let them be part of it. No. I invite you, dear friends, to study and practice Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as the main guide of your life to live according to it, to build your life on the rock of gospel nonviolence, to hang on to dear, dear Jesus. So not only will we survive, but we'll be his friends and live in God's reign of nonviolence now and forever. Thanks so much for listening. I know this has been long, but thank you. Once again, I ask your help to tell everybody you know to, uh, about these podcasts and spread it on Facebook. That helped me a lot. God bless you. Peace be with you.